Welcome to Reroute. This is Gavin Wilhite. Today, we get to talk to Aviv Ovadia. Aviv is a consultant who specializes in the governance of emerging technologies, particularly those of artificial intelligence and online social platforms. He has been a technology and public purpose fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center and served as chief technologist at the Center for Social Media Responsibility at the University of Michigan. Today, we'll dive into topics including lotocracies, incentive structures for change in big tech companies, and promising social media algorithms for improving online discourse. So sit forward, listen in, and enjoy our conversation with Aviv Ovadia. Today, I'm here with Aviv Ovadia. How are you doing, Aviv? Excellent. Great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, so I've been excited to to talk to you for, for a long time about some of the stuff you've been working on. I, I know you as somebody who's been very passionately trying to solve some of these uh, problems around kind of disinformation and kind of division in the country and, and particularly around kind of social media. Um, I'm curious, maybe if you can tell us a little bit about what kind of inspired you to start thinking about that. Yeah, well, uh, I guess I went to college at MIT and uh, graduated in 2009. And even at that point, I was really excited about the potential of technology, but also very concerned about its potential. Mm. Um, and spending some time in industry, um, I became more concerned. I was focused not just at that point on the impacts of technology on society, but also on the way that um, companies and that the, the, them companies as a way of sort of enacting technology can potentially both positively and, and definitely negatively impact society. And so I was sort of following that, particularly in the information ecosystem, which has always been my primary interest. Um, and in 2016, I became extremely concerned. Mm. Um, like early, early mid that year, um, I'd been working on some projects related to journalism and structured information, but I sort of put all that aside, put my consulting work aside um, and focus full time since then on what we can do to have our information ecosystem actually support functional democracy and wise decision making. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad you're looking at it because it's very important. Um, and so, you know, I think with the way that we're going to go uh, talk about it today is uh, kind of in, in two parts, you know, one is uh, looking at kind of the the meta game that's kind of going on in social media, the kind of different incentives and dynamics that are at play, uh, and maybe some of the things that we want to change about them. Um, and looking at both the way that we've been approaching it so far, and then you know what a better way to approach that would be. Uh, and then I think as well, kind of talking about um, this uh, this thing that you've uh, been been speaking up around, kind of like citizen assemblies and kind of like the path to. Uh, kind of making these decisions or the path to uh, kind of helping these platforms establish better ways of doing things. And um, I know this is in a context uh, for you as part of like a larger research project around uh, kind of the intersection of democracy and technology and, and building these wise decision systems. And I really love the sort of meta ways you think about the stuff. And um, just for those that are listening, we're going to, to hold some of that for a uh, potential future episode. Uh, and today we're just going to kind of focus down uh, in particular around uh, these social media platforms and um, 
in citizen assemblies, but, but very excited to, to have you on to, to sort of finish that conversation there. So um, uh, just to kick us off, I'm curious if maybe you can tell us about kind of, you know, what path we are on right now around how we are trying to kind of shape like discourse on social media or control the platforms. I know we hear a lot of senators go off about how we got to break up these companies. And I've always kind of had my own suspicions about why that might be (laughs) not the best plan Uh, or, or, you know, maybe some aspects are Um, and also things about, you know, sort of quote unquote policing content. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about kind of the path that we're on that might not lead to some better, some great places and and maybe some, some better alternatives that we have uh, that we could be trying to do. Yes. So the, there's a few different ways that people are primarily thinking about this. So you have, let's say, you know, some senators in the U S who are very much about, we should, we need to moderate more and more content. Um, this content is bad. This content is, is, you know, not bad, et cetera. And so that's sort of this controlling and content moderation frame. Um, then you have people who are, let's say more web three people who are like, we need to decentralize everything. We want to ensure that, um, that, uh, you know, no one has any power over any of these systems and everyone can just speak hundred percent freely. And there's really no consequences, um, around that, except maybe some sort of monetary token incentives. Um, and you also have people in like policymakers who are trying to break up the companies and create more competitive dynamics. Um, and you have people who are trying to build federated systems, things like Mastodon, uh, you have people who are really advocating for personal choice around things like ranking systems, even within a centralized platform. So these are all different ways of sort of tackling this, this problem of like something is bad social media um, platforms. Like it's a little bit vague and there's a whole bunch of different things that are trying to get at it and they're trying to attack little parts of the problem and, and they may or may not actually um, be very helpful at addressing those particular parts of the problem that they think they are addressing. Um, Yeah. Well, I'm curious to double tap or double click on the um, that uh, the concept of you know breaking these platforms up because I've I've wondered about that a little bit myself where it's like you know I, I don't think the incentives and in, in sort of culture at Facebook is ideal by any stretch of the imagination but I think that people are kind of working hard on this like it's hard for me to imagine that just breaking it up is going to solve any of these problems like it seems like even if you're well intentioned it's really hard to get this stuff right. Is that, is that your understanding as well? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, I think like one way to think about this is if you were to naively create some sort of system for connecting all of humanity, mm-hmm. like it would look like something between SMS, email, and Facebook, um, <laughs> you know, and, and Twitter. Like it's like some combination. It's just, this is sort of the naive way to do it. Either you have something that's yeah. just like a, you know, reverse chronological feed, what I would call recency-based ranking. It just... You see the latest thing. That's how email and SMS works um, uh, and things like WhatsApp. Or you have something that's like an algorithmic feed, um, which is sort of how, how Facebook works. Um, and these are these are just the, like, it's just a bunch of sort of the obvious ideas all thrown together. Mm-hmm. And then you're optimizing in a way that sort of makes sense. Like, oh, we should, people like this thing, we'll show them more of it. And so most of the, the problems that we see are like, the output of doing the result of doing sort of the really, really obvious thing um, that seems like it should actually help people in some abstract sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's maybe a question more of nuance than of, yeah. 
And, and can you, you know, to, to somebody who might be just kind of strongly advocating for, you know, we just need to do the chronological or reverse chronological feeds, what would you kind of say to somebody who is saying that? I mean, if you want to reward the people who speak the most, then it's a good approach. Um, that's generally not the thing that I'm trying to reward. And it's just um, like, I, I think that that the set of incentives that are created by a chronological feed are probably somewhat better in many cases than the incentives created by a um, by a feed that's optimizing for engagement. Um, but it's not strictly better in all cases, and you need a lot of controls on top of it to make it even usable. Mm -hmm. uh, and, mm -hmm. and you can even look at some of the impacts that this has in places where WhatsApp is really dominant, where you have incredible propaganda campaigns waged on WhatsApp um, mm -hmm. with you know millions of people involved in actually spreading that. Um, like India is a, is a prime example where where that seems to be the case. Makes sense. Um, so, you know, if we are, if we are going to sort of reconsider these, these kind of game dynamics online, like what, what ideas have you seen kind of put forward? I think maybe there's this concept of, of bridging uh, ranking versus engagement. Can, can you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So just taking a step back first, the mm -hmm. one way to think about all of these problems is, or all these solutions is, like how much are we weighing or, like, or how much are we caring about some sort of collective good, collective public good? And like, how are we thinking about the externalities? Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's this collective public good, which is our ability to communicate and interact with each other, to understand each other, to make wise decisions. Like that's a type of collective good. And you can have systems for communication that can support that collective good. And you can have systems that, that can make it harder. Um, and that could like their externalities, like polluting that collective, but it's like, people are just like more likely to be angry at, ch at each other. They're, mm -hmm. they're more likely to make terrible decisions that hurt other people or each or even themselves. Um, we definitely see that within the world of the pandemic, the world of the economy, the world of like, uh, let's say fake science more broadly, um, uh, where people are saying that, oh, this is going to cure, this is going to cure that. And, you know, yeah. often it, it isn't. Um, it, and that, uh, it that certainly does not dead. respect uh, party lines. <laughs> this is something yeah, you see no, everywhere. That, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the, the idea here is like, okay, if we want to have, I mean, if it is, if this is true that there is this collective public good that mm -hmm. we can either have infrastructure and incentives to support, or we can have in infrastructure and incentives to hurt, um, which one are we going to do? Um, and currently we're just doing the default thing and we're like maybe trying to paper it around the edges. Um, and, or we're trying to, to solve other problems like, oh, these, these companies have too much power. Like that's a real problem. Um, mm -hmm. and then we'll talk about that in the second half of this episode, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. that's a different problem to solve. That's, that's what competition is supposed to solve, for example, or federation. These are all ways of solving this, like the, these sort of power problems. But if you want to get at the the problem of how do you how do you create or how do you ensure that you're supporting this collective public good, well, that's what bridging based ranking is trying to do. It's saying current systems for ranking content divide us. And is there a way to instead have them reward bridge builders over conflict creators? Hmm. Yeah, so so sort of not rewarding just the the outrage creation but rewarding some sort of um, 
constructive conversation or, or sort of inviting in? Would that be fair? Yeah, I mean, there's and there's a number of different ways to think about this and to do this. Um, and I'll, they'll actually. Um, so right now, I have a policy paper out um, with the. I was just at the Belfer Center and um, at Harvard, and so yep. basically, here is a description of what we should be aiming for. The challenges with what we're currently trying to do, and a a direction and sort of a set of steps that we need to take. Right, we need to be able to measure the extent to which our systems are, let's say, rewarding bridge builders over conflict creators, um, like that would be helpful. And, and when I say yep. conflict creators, I should actually clarify, there is constructive conflict is absolutely crucial for functional democracy. Um, I'm talking here about um, sort of this more destructive conflict uh, that that doesn't, act, that, that leads to like an incapacity to actually function in a democratic system as opposed to the, the type that, leads to, to, to more positive, um, or th that leads to change as opposed to like calcification. Got it. So if I'm thinking about this in practice, right? So, you know, if I'm thinking about my experience on Facebook, there, there's kind of two things, right? There's one is kind of like, you know, what is showing up in my feed, right? Uh, but then there's also kind of like, how is the conversation going if I engage with it in a comment thread? Um, exactly. And, you know, I have, you know, it's kind of sad, but, you know, over the last couple of years, I've waded into comment threads to try to, you know, build some bridges, so to speak. And it is always exhausting and never feels very rewarding. And you never quite know if you changed anybody's mind. And so, you know, I guess kind of recommender systems aside, do you have thoughts on how we can change that game of just kind of engaging in comment threads? Uh, I don't know if, if bridging based ranking still applies there or if there's other sorts of things there, but, but yeah, that's the question. Yeah. So the idealized form of, or like at least one idealized form of what, what bridging based ranking means. Um, and imagine this is, this is not technically feasible, but this is at least with our current technology, but imagine mm -hmm. a system that is able to say, we can show in your feed any of, you know, a thousand things that have just been shared by your friends. Uh, we know, like the, the system knows to some extent, based off how people have responded to things like this, what the likely result of showing you a particular thing is on the likelihood that you in the future will be more willing to have productive conversations across societal divides. Right? Because if, it, if it, it's... It's essentially like you can imagine this in the models right now, here's the current sort of state of societal divides. And then if we show this set of things to you, here's the new state of societal divides. Um, and you can imagine it, you can, you can then choose between which of those things to show based off, which is actually going to reduce the extent of, of these sort of destructive divides. Mm -hmm. That's the abs an abstract notion for what bridging based ranking can do. And there's a lot of like heuristics that you actually would do to do this in practice because that sort of causal inference is very, very, very hard and we don't really know how to do it yet. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then, um, so is, would that also then apply to the, the conversation within there or is the hope that it would just, people would be differently primed if that was the way that we did things for a few years, mm -hmm. the conversations would go better or? Well, so, so it actually like comment ranking is a thing on Facebook. Oh, right? fair. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it turns out that, um, you know, a journalist gave me a copy of 
one of the lead Facebook papers. Um, and they've actually tested like a very simplified heuristic version of this. And it reduced the need for content moderation. Like it reduced the number of things that aren't moderated. It like it had a, a number of sort of positive benefits. Like I think the extent of bullying comments went down. There was like a whole bunch of different things that happened. This is an experiment. Interesting. But, Just by changing but, what comments were, were most visible and, and so, where they were on the page. Yeah. And, and the heuristic, I think, was just some sort of sense. It was, again, it was a sim much simpler version of this, which is sort of good enough, which is um, which of these comments is most liked across divides? So it's just mm -hmm. looking locally instead of globally. Wait, can you, can you clarify that a little bit more? What does that mean locally instead of globally in this context? So, 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 okay. So I, the example I can, I can talk about more is, is, um, yep. uh, birdwatch. Um, so this is Twitter. Birdwatch is a, um, it's a system for essentially people can sort of comment on, can, can sort of add context to tweets about them potentially being misinformation or like just clarify things right. about them. Um, and so this is still an early pilot project. Uh, it's very cool the way they, they've done this. It's all very, it's all open. So the code is open for the, the algorithms, the descriptions of what they're doing. Um, and so one of the things that they're doing there is, so anyone can who's, who's, who's now invited in the program, it'll be much broader later, um, can add context to a tweet. Um, but then people rate those tweets on how helpful they are. They rate the and context? Oh, the, the They tweet. rate the context. Context exactly. tweets. They rate, okay. Yeah, yeah. Great. They rate the context on the, that was written for the tweets. Yeah. Yep. And you can see, you can then determine um, based off of, I believe it's their Twitter history, um, though it may just be their comment history, uh, their, their, their rating history. I can't remember which off the top of my head. Um, but they can determine which context is liked, is rated highly by people who rate who in general seem to be across the side of the vines based off their other activity. I see. And so, so those are the ones that are shown on Twitter publicly. I see. So it's kind of like identifying the bridge builders and then more weighting their positive reactions to things. Yeah. You identify who, who the bridge builders are, who are the writing, the context that is actually, um, uh, found, found to be helpful across these divides. Very interesting. Very interesting. And do you have any, uh, I, you know, I know this is a complicated question and this might go very deep into some machine learning topics, but do you have any sense on how that is determined or how that could be determined? How, which is determined? Um, so there's, I guess there's, there's two, there's two aspects of this, but the, the particular one that I was poking at was how you can tell whether somebody is a bridge builder versus a partisan. Oh yeah. I mean, you can just, see like are there contexts or there posts if you want to go to a system that, that does that which are they like to cross divides like that's that again this is a simple non-causal approach so you have some sort of cohort that is you know also maybe integrated into their advertising systems or whatever that knows if somebody is left or right and maybe you've derived that from uh, like the words that they use or something that they've self-identified. And then you see if people kind of have friends in both or have make posts that are liked by both, these sorts of things. Yeah. And I wouldn't necessarily even go to like left and right, though those mm -hmm. will be, those are the obvious things, but there are all these invisible sort of societal fault lines. Um, 
and things that bridge those societal fault lines within those particular contexts. Um, that like, just so that, again, the goal here is not to have people change their opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, the goal is simply to be able to have, to have those bridges that you can even converse with each other and you can measure and you can see again, is like, does using this sort of system actually make it more likely that the interactions across these societal fault lines are productive conversations? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and so, so that makes sense on sort of elevating kind of individuals based on that. But is there, uh, I'm assuming that, that people have maybe thought about, and maybe you've thought about this, about kind of hypothetical, um, what would the term be like, kind of like, uh, you know, textual analysis or, you know, figuring out from the post whether this is an inflammatory post or not? Is, is that something that's being looked at? Yeah, so that, that also can definitely exist. I mean, the challenge there is that you don't get at low resource languages, and those are the areas with the most like likelihood, in many cases, of actual large-scale civil war, um, for example. Um, Sorry, so you, was, was that saying rarer use languages? Was that or, uh, sort of... Yeah, yeah, languages that just don't have as much data. Um, I see, I see. I see. Um, so, so maybe not so, rare so use in the world, but, but yeah, limited... Uh, cleaned up. Yeah, where we don't have great models for them. Um, and I mean, there's also like, you can have potentially principled um, reasons that you you aren't wanting to look at content. Um, the best systems mm-hmm. would probably use a combination. Uh, but again, I think there's um, like, there's a lot of thought that needs to be put into like how you draw the line and where you're doing process based thinking around like, here's a neutral process um, versus putting your thumb on the scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and which is assuming that, that this is the, the sort of way that I'm trying to approach this is to have as little bit, as little of that as possible while still right. addressing these externalities to these pub- to this public good. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I think I've seen maybe one more way that you uh, looked at it in one of the papers was with kind of like what is the ratio of engagement, like positive or negative engagement from different cohorts on the given post, right? Like did the, and forgive me for exactly, using simple yeah. terms, right? But did the left person and the right person both thumb up it or did one person angry face it and the other person heart it, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. So that, and that, that, that sort of describes, again, like this sort of more correlative approach that is, you know, tractable to do today. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like, they're doing this well, like that is a simplified model, um, yeah. doing this well and doing this in a way that, gets at sort of the, the nuances of, of, of healthy democratic functioning and doesn't just like try to bludgeon you into being nice to each other. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. uh, like yeah. Uh, even the language around this is just very, very tricky. And so mm-hmm. I, I want to like acknowledge that I'm not always going to be perfect at even like navigating that because you aren't trying to, to like brainwash people. You're trying to support them in, in humanizing each other. Right. Um, and, and, and provide an environment that humanizes you as opposed to seeing each other across this, this other that that's over there that is clearly bad. Um, and how do yeah. you build physical systems like cities that support that? Um, and then how do you build social systems and, and virtual systems that support that? And so this is just taking, trying to take that, those lessons 
um, things that come out of even things like architecture and urban planning and say like, okay, we know how to do things that sort of do parts of this. What does it look like to do this in an online space? Yep, absolutely. And it's critical, uh, you know, and that dehumanization is a, is a really interesting one. This is a tiny bit of an aside, but might be interesting is I, you know, there's a guy that I uh, commenter really like, uh, Bo of the fifth column on YouTube and his comment sections are one of the most kind of supportive cross the aisle comment sections I've ever seen for a YouTube channel. But one of the things I started noticing was that there was more and more people talking about Russians as orcs on there. I don't know if you've seen that trend where it's, you know, kind of dehumanizing the enemy. Yeah. And so I called it out a little bit, you know, or you know, try to call it in, right? And it's like, hey, you know, I get it, right? And I don't actually know how much it's necessary to dehumanize the, you know, opponent if you're actually in combat. That that I don't know. But I was like, you know, hey, this let's just try not to do this. This causes, you know, all of these horrifying, you know, atrocities when you start dehumanizing people, right? And uh, it was interesting because it was just, it was. Um, there was very strong opinions on both sides on that issue. And, you know, um, yeah, it was just, just one instance where I saw that and it was like, this seems like a really tricky question on like, do you try to enforce this or not? Cause clearly like the quote unquote good guys are trying to use this to, you know, bolster their morale. Um, while it's also kind of really bad to dehumanize people. Right. So anyway, it's just an interesting example. Yeah. That is yep. that. I mean, real conflict makes all of this very complicated. Yes. Um, and by, I mean, sorry, by which I mean like literal physical weapons being shot at you. And I think there's right. interesting things that we'll be talking about, I guess, next time around using systems like this in conflict in Libya by the UN. But we'll, we'll, mm. we'll, we'll pause on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's yeah, tricky stuff. So, uh, so yes, coming back to... Um, uh, these different kind of like ranking and incentive systems. Um, I think, you know, there, there, there's kind of this angle of, okay, let's figure out what would be kind of more ideal systems here. And I think that you're right that, that definitely some of this is just kind of like first pass naive implementation, right? Like, you know, anybody who's been in a technology company knows that when you go in to plan your, the work that you're going to do, the PM is like, do we absolutely need to do that? And if we don't, and it's not going to move some needle that matters, we're not going to do it, right? So there's a lot of stuff that just kind of gets stuck at like the first way that you did the thing. And like users also really complain when you change it, right? And so I definitely uh, believe that that's driving a lot of this stuff is just like it was the easiest thing to put in there. Uh, but then on the other hand, you know, the other thing that the PM is going to be telling you, right, is we got to move that needle of the, um, you know, eyeballs on screen time, right, to make our advertisers and bottom line happy. And so there... You know, and, and I know that that drives a lot of this kind of engagement base ranking. Um, and I know you're aware of this too. Uh, but so how do we, you know, prevent companies from just seeing that as their only incentive, the, the kind of eyeballs on screen time and, you know, not even considering any of these other things because it is, you know, not driving the advertising bottom line. Yeah, I mean, this gets at the, the thing we talked about at the beginning, which is these directions of some of the current policy thinking, um, which is let's create a lot more competition here. And competition is very, very helpful in a whole host of, of domains, um, but it requires you to be able to set some bar of like here, or some mm -hmm. way of saying, here are the externalities that you're not going to create. 
Um, and until we have a way to do that effectively, it feels like there is a, a real need by like, given the set of like societal incentives that we have for these companies to continue to try to attract attention. Um, right. And so one of the things that's actually interesting is because some of these companies like, you know, Facebook or, or YouTube have so much monopoly power, they actually do have the leverage to do some of this at right. least a bit, especially yeah. if they all act, you know, if they act somewhat in concert, you know, with either th due to, um, did it do to sort of, you know, public pressure or some sort of, um, uh, third party industry group. Um, and so that it's almost like the centralization allows them to say, okay, we're going to do this bridging thing. Um, you're just not that likely to go somewhere else. Um, right. because we already, we already have, have you. And so th this is like this very, very weird tension, um, where actually the the size and the, almost the monopoly power, um, and, he, uh, and even in some ways the profits of the of the companies enable them to to take some actions that might otherwise be difficult. Like if you're a small scrappy um, company that's just like you know trying to survive, and, and I think that there's some famous saying that you know your company is dead, your startup is dead until you bring it to life. <laughs> um, and like, that's like the default, the default state for a startup is dead. Um, right. you're not going to be spending time and money on maybe this and sure. Maybe there'll be some people who will use your, your nice bridging based system. Um, uh, but you're not going to get the, the level of, um, you maybe, or maybe, you know, some of the people who are very, you know, paying attention and focused on the stuff will, will use it, but it, it, it's not going to get to the, the broader population, um, because that's not how you win um, the, that marketplace of attention. So I'm curious what other kinds of ways we can, you know, ensure incentivize these social media companies to adopt better practices, you know, maybe, uh, you know, and, and, and I imagine there is ways maybe we can try to convince them of this, but, but say that we can't convince them that these are better for their bottom line. Are there other ways that we can try to, um, you know, push them towards adopting better ranking algorithms? Yeah. So one of the other things that I've been really excited about is this idea of universal owner theory and hmm. it's a mouthful, but universal owners just means that most people aren't invested in like one company as their main thing. Like that's probably not the right thing to do. Um, or even just a few they're, they're invested across the entire portfolio. Um, you know, they have their in index fund and it sort of sucks for, one company to do well and all the other companies to do poorly uh, in that in that frame. Um, and, and not even just most people, but their pension funds, right? They're, the endowments of all the major, you know, universities, like all these things, they're they're broadly diversified, right? They're they're in a sense yeah. universal owners. And so there's this there's a growing um, uh, growing perspective um, and like sort of like organizational infrastructure being created around how to get these institutional investors, um, you know, the vanguards of the world and then the pension funds of the world, at the very least, like all of these things that have the majority of the money almost in the financial system mm -hmm. to say, oh, you, you shouldn't make your stock price go up. You know, you are one of our portfolio companies and then have 10 other companies, you know, go down and our market cap overall decreases like that sort of stuff. Um, 
And it, like, it actually is like completely aligned in, in some sense with their actual mandate, right? It's just the, there's an inertial issue there around how to sort of make that happen. And, and so there's an organization um, called Shareholder Commons, uh, which I'm, I'm very excited about, um, led by Rick Alexander, who was also someone who helped create the, De- the Delaware Benefit Corporation statutes. Oh, um, great. Yeah. And so that something that I was really excited about. And I reached out to him a number of years ago because I'm like, we sh- these maybe I can define that. Also be- yeah, let me oh, define yeah. that real fast for, for folks that might not know. So the benefit corporations are uh, very important. I, you know, honestly, this is a longer conversation. I feel like they shouldn't need to exist um, because you can incorporate for any legal reason. Um, but it basically uh, helps protect you legally from uh, uh, lawsuits if you are optimizing for things other than profit with your company. Um, right. Is that your understanding? Yeah. Yeah, um, no, that, that that's that's a good a good sort of very short summary of like the the point is like you you choose yeah. essentially a mission for your organization and you uh, you have to sort of do a report every two years about like how you're not terrible to everything. Um, uh, and other than that, it says you you have the capacity now to care about your stake the stakeholders that are impacted by your, your by your corporation yep. and not just the shareholders and yep. so this was sort of this is the the so this the the b corp organization um helped create these statutes all around the world where they were necessary um not all jurisdictions actually needed this because in some jurisdictions this was the default <laughs> in some sense uh you could mm-hmm. yep. you know we didn't have the same sort of case law we had here where you can get sued for trying to, you know, help protect the environment if it's bad for the shareholders. Uh, and again, another conversation, but that's like just within like the last, it's it's a combination of shitty business school uh, preaching in the 80s and then like bad judicial precedent in like the last 10 or 15 years in Delaware. <laughs> but, but that's yeah, a whole well, other conversation. More, yeah. and, and more than just just 10 or 15 years. But yeah, it's, there's been a, a whole bunch of, of cases around this. And so Rick is like a corporate lawyer who was in mm-hmm. all the corporate, the boardroom's like, you know, dealing with all this stuff and sort of went over to the other side. Um, and so his, the, the, I guess going back around here to, to the tech companies, yeah. um, what organizations like his are doing is they're saying, how can we, um, like, first of all, this benefit corporation is great. Like, I mean, I'm still trying to get, you know, Alphabet, Meta, et cetera, like, you know, Google, Facebook, et cetera, to become benefit corps. Like that's, that's mm-hmm. a separate agenda here. Um, and it provides more flexibility for some of the things that we're talking about. Right. But even apart from that, can you create an overall incentive for all organizations that are on the public markets? Interesting. Um, and that ha- that are, have diversified shareholders where they're actively being pushed to do this because that's what universal owners demand. Hmm. And universal owners are maybe the majority of owners. And so now you have you have this alternative sort of theory of change. It's not just an optional thing. Um, you don't need legislation, though that would be nice, uh, but you can actually use the existing capitalist incentive system to try to like align capitalism to a, a long-term human future. Very interesting. So that, that's it's, its own it, yeah. fascinating area. But the point here, the bringing it back to platforms, is like this is one of the mechanisms by which, you know, there's all the normal mechanisms, just media pressure, regulatory pressure, you know, um, just sort of social pressure. Like, Oh, my friends are like really pissed off at me for working at Facebook. 
you know, yeah. if we're terrible, right? There's it all works those better than you think. Then, yeah. Yep. Those are really, really important. Right. And, um, and like they have led to real, to real change. Um, but not like at the order that we necessarily need. Mm-hmm. And so this mm-hmm. is another set of, of pressures, um, that can help support the, the type of world where we're not optimizing for one company and hurting every other company in the process. Um, uh, and, and maybe even, you know, governments and, you know, peace. Interesting. So it does seem like in that case, then you would need to have some sort of way of uh, figuring out or, or at least lightly measuring the sort of negative externalities for the rest of the business community. That- exactly. And that's exactly yep. what Charles Commons is working to do. Okay. Uh, cool. And there's other organizations like Engine Number One, which have actually executed on this. They're an ETF that has this mm. model and they like change three of the board members at Exxon. Like that's pretty legit. Nice. Um, you know, to awesome. try to get it to be focused more toward our, you know, a long-term future uh, with renewables Great. and sustainability. So there's, there's like movement in this direction. Uh, awesome. And it's just, how do we accelerate that? And then how does it help enable not just on the climate and sustainability front, but also on this platform front? Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, um, maybe this is a good place to transition into uh, kind of other ways of um, interacting with the the commons or the citizenry or or sort of um, wider groups of stakeholders. Um, you want to you want to start talking a little bit about like citizen assemblies? Yeah. So, yeah, so taking a step back here, so the one one major body of work um, of mine is is around bridging based ranking, right? And that mm-hmm. is like like fixing incentives. It addresses this question of what is rewarded, right? That's it's around what is what is the entire reward system of our, like, that, that's created by a Facebook, by a Google, by a YouTube, uh, by a yep. TikTok. And it, that's addressing this what is rewarded question. But there's still this question of who decides what is rewarded and who should decide that. And, like, yep. should it be, like, a CEO? Should it be a government? When we say government, what do we really mean? Do we mean some magical impartial regulator? Do we mean like a politician? Do we mean Joe Biden? Do we mean Donald Trump? Do we mean Bolsonaro? Do we mean um, Macron in, in France and Justin Trudeau? Like who, who do we actually mean? Um, mm-hmm. Like uh, who decides, right? And, and I think none of those are like necessarily the perfect option. They all have significant downsides, especially when you can have changes in who's in power. Right. And the incentives that they have are not necessarily great. Like mm-hmm. many politicians... Um, I guess I didn't even mention auto, you know, actual autocrats, right? Like a Putin, right? Like, right. you know, but, but the, 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 social media is a great way to entrench your own power, right? If you control the information flows, that's, that's really powerful. Uh, and so you don't necessarily want a poli- like uh, any sort of political apparatus that has direct control over things like ranking, things like content moderation. And then part of why we have things like the First Amendment in the U.S. and free expression broadly as, as a right under the UN Declaration of Human Rights is because that's like not, it's not so great to like totally mess with that. Yeah. But there are actually alternatives and the normal alternative that you have to this question of um, who decides, like the ideal that we sort of come to is like democracy, but democracy in our current conception generally means politicians and politicians have these incentives to keep themselves in power. And so you have the, the principal agent problem. You have like this prince, like the, 
the, the, the principle here is like all the people who are being impacted and, and the agent is the platform. Um, right. And you don't want it to, to be doing the, the things like based off what that, um, oh, sorry, the, sorry, the agent here is the politician. Um, and so okay. you don't want yeah, the, yeah, the, uh, the, um, you don't want the, like the, that agent might not actually be asking, acting on behalf of their constituents. Um, whether it be their users or their or their um, their literal constituents, and so let me see if I understand. So you're you're sort of saying that that there's kind of it, it's you know if you're trying to have somebody other than the like um, shareholders and uh, executive crew at these companies deciding the policy, then it's the politicians. Is that what you're saying? That's sort of the standard way that's, that's think the about status, it. And they're like they're like both of them. Yeah. Both of them are terrible, right? Yeah. Like. Like they're, they're both, they're, this is sort of like the no good option problem, I think as, um, right. I think it was Alex Fierce, um, uh, called that. Um, and like no one, you don't want any of those people to do running things. Um, mm-hmm. and so what do we do? Uh, and so this is where this new approach to democracy comes in that I think is really, really exciting and promising. And this is what's called citizen assemblies or, um, or, uh, democratic lotteries or sortition, uh, mini publics. There's a bunch of different names for this basic idea and process. Mm-hmm. And the way that that works is you have a what again? What's called like a democratic lottery? You take um, a stratified random sample of the population. So it's similar to what you get with a poll, where you say, "Oh, I want to have, it. I want to select a set of people." such that they satisfy a set of, of demographic or ideological, whatever characteristics. And you, you, given those characteristics, you can get a microcosm of that society, of that, of that population. Totally. So thinking about this as a concrete example, we can talk about like the U S right. You, mm-hmm. you have, you can get a hundred people or, you know, 500 people in a room or on zoom where they are essentially representative of that broader population. And they're chosen essentially randomly. And there's a whole set right. of processes for doing that. Um, uh, Cause you, there are ways to do this poorly and there are ways to do this well, um, mm. as you know, any pollster will know. Um, and then given that, that, that those selected representatives or members of this, of this assembly, they deliberate on some, some issue that's brought before them. And so that means that they weigh evidence based off input from uh, stakeholders, from experts. They're facilitated in a way that helps them sort of navigate those, the issue at hand, find common ground, and then come up with a set of, come up with a set of recommendations. So yeah. this sounds like idealistic, but we can talk about how this has actually been done around the world for all sorts of issues. And some of you may have already heard of a number of places where this has had significant impact. Can I, can I maybe um, reword it in a way that has made sense to me? So just, sure. I think the, um, you know, just the idea, right, of, you know, either it's randomly selected um, just broadly or, or sort of maybe one incarnation I can talk about is a bunch of people kind of say, hey, I would like to be part of this. Um, and then they are randomly selected in a way that makes a somewhat diverse body, right? You've got, you know, maybe roughly a third or conservative, a third or liberal, a third or independent or whatever. And then they come from all different other kinds of um, uh, sort of buckets or populations. And then you, 
Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a, it's a, a little bit of nuance here because I think the details here do matter. Okay. Um, the way this is generally done is you actually send out mailings to, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of households um, to create your initial, initial pool. Mm. Um, and then people opt in based off those mailings. And, um, and then of those people, you then create a set of sort of representative samples, like ways of, of bucketing those people to fulfill all your criteria um, so that they actually are representative of the broader population. Got it. And then you choose randomly among those sets, that set of people. Okay. Um, and then once you have that group uh, that is your mini public, you basically say, hey, we would love you to take part in this panel uh, or this assembly that we're going to be putting together over the next, say, like two months, where we're going to like meet every weekend and we will give you a stipend slash pay for your childcare so that you can be there, whether it's in person or remote. Um, and then you like bring in experts to kind of like give them different types of education about the issues that they're going to be deliberating about. Is that fair? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and like one way to think about this is like, let's say you had a magical, like you, everyone had a time turner and everyone was able to, for every issue that came up, you, there was a referendum and you were all able to take an infinite amount of time to talk to everyone else and hear from all the experts and come up with the, the, the best possible decision you could possibly make on, on that issue. And then you voted, right? Like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's totally. you don't even look, you're not even, you're thinking you're, you're hearing both the experiences of everyone else, but then also the, the, the perspectives and, and knowledge of all the experts. And you're even thinking about not even what you want, what your gut opinion is, but what, like what your considered judgment is as, as sort of Ian from new democracy would say, he's one of the people who actually runs these four governments around the world. Interesting. So moving from that gut opinion to consider judgment and moving from sort of what you instinctively want to what you sort of want to want, um, like what, after you've really thought about what it is that you really care about, like that transition is something that is supported by this process. Yeah. And then, you know, one thing that has, as I think about this, uh, you know, one of the problems that seems a little challenging is how do you, how do you select or evaluate the kind of experts that are coming in to, to give context? Yeah. So that is its own, like, longer conversation. Um, there's a, you know, a bunch of different processes here, depending on the, the specifics. And I guess one piece of context that I think we haven't explicitly mentioned is mm -hmm. there's a number of different ways that these things can actually be used. So one example might be a platform is like, Hey, everyone is getting really annoyed at us because of our political ads, mm -hmm. um, and like our political ad policy. And, uh, we would like to, not have our hands on this hot potato um, because yeah. that isn't something we actually want. Um, and that's actually often true. Like, you know, Twitter just removed political ads, if I recall correctly, and in a number of districts, it just didn't want to deal with it. Um, and that had, <laughs> yeah. you know, some, some impacts on, on, um, on, on, you know, who was able to succeed in that. Those impacts may not have actually been always positive. It might've been better to do something a bit more nuanced uh, because political ads can actually help candidates who are maybe are less, you know, less wealthy, uh, and that, you know, can, can affect the, the barriers. Right. And so you really want people to actually think about this and like go through those, the different cases and like explore what are the pros and cons of different approaches. Yes. And so, but, but, but going back to the process here, you're given a question, you're, you're, you're asked as an assembly member, 
what should the political ads policy be for Twitter, right? So Twitter could actually convene an assembly to do this, you know, mm-hmm. let's say within a, within a jurisdiction or, or even, you know, internationally. And then that assembly creates a set of recommendations on that. And so this is, they're essentially being prompted with some question and they come with a response similar to what, if you've been following language models, it's sort of an, you can think about it almost analogously to that, except this is a representative process that outputs a set of recommendations. Yes. Yeah. I, I want to, sorry, I just wanted to touch back on something real fast because I wanted to understand the corrections you gave me on the selection of the candidates in the first place. Um, was the point that you were trying to make is that the first, um, the first filter is the random sending of the invitations versus a uh, self-nomination? Yes, yes. So basically okay. it is initially sent to a random, like, you know, census tract based when, when, where that's possible in that jurisdiction, um, yep. uh, you know, population. And so that like literally random addresses, if I recall correctly. And there's, you know, again, different processes in different places. But, you know, talking about gold standard, that is, the thing, that yeah. is like one of the potential gold standards. The thing that amuses me is because that is actually very analogous to the way that um, Unreal just decided to implement their game review system on their platform. Mm. Um, because the problem was that everybody was brigading reviews, right? If there's some hot thing, then all the people who are upset about that post on Twitter to all their friends to go like brigade like one star reviews, right? Um, and so what they do is they randomly send out invitations to be a reviewer for the specific game such that they are the ones that are first sending out the random invitations to prevent kind of the brigading, right? And it sounds Excellent. like this. No, that, that's, yeah, yeah. that is great. I'm, I'm excited to be able to share that in the future. Um, yeah. And it, it shows that this is, again, this is like the jury idea in many ways. The right. difference here yeah. between a jury and this is that this is a legislative process as opposed to a judicial process. Interesting. Yeah. So tell me more about that distinction. Cause I, cause that was coming to mind is, is a analog, analogous situation here. Yeah. I mean, another name for these is actually civic juries or our citizen juries. Hmm. Uh, but the, the distinction here is just the output here is not a decision on a particular case. The output here is a set of like broad reaching recommendations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that means that you often need a lot more like you need to go a lot broader and a lot deeper to, to get to, to good outcomes. And you want it to be much more because this is something that affects everyone is something that affects that particular person who's on trial. For example, you want it to be something that's much more broadly representative. Interesting. And then I guess the question becomes, you know, I, while, while juries seem like they do what they do, they don't necessarily have like the best reputation. Um, and so I, I, I guess I wonder, you know, is there a way that we, you know, are there issues with them that we can fix? Um, does it just become easier when it's not like, I know like the U S like uh, judicial system is, is very kind of adversarial in nature. So I don't know if just kind of like not having that context improves things, but yeah. How do we kind of, you know, do better than our current, um, jury system? Yeah. So I think like different jury systems are different, but I will say mm-hmm. broadly, the goal here is definitely like there is some adversarialness maybe within stakeholders having different perspectives that they might be representing, but there is a very structured process of facilitation that happens mm-hmm. here, um, which is 
like it's it's kind of like a different almost like evolutionary pedigree um or evolutionary process that led to these these systems for coming to common ground and learning from each other and so at least in practice when you look at how these things have been used around the world so on issues ranging from um you know nuclear power uh power policy um you know water policy uh like you know top sort of third rail issues like abortion and gay marriage. Yeah. You said it was um, uh, abortion in Ireland, right? You said it was used for. Yeah, right? that was that like it was a third rail issue. There was no capacity to to for um for those on on the sort of for the politicians to sort of come to any there's no like ability to compromise on that clearly. Um and, and I think we can see all the dynamics that would make that that possible to to at least give some access. Can you tell and, us any, anything more about that example in particular? Like who ran that and how it went? Or? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to fixate too much on it because I don't sure. want to like associate this process with that. Um, but <laughs> sure. I think that the key the key insight here, um, and, and the reason why is because I think this process is, is like I want to. I think if we focus on the on the specifics and you end up like part like making the process itself partisan, I don't want to do that. And I don't, I don't think it makes sense. It should be that sort of like saying like democracy led to some bad thing, therefore it's bad, but you can sort of can make those connections. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened like broadly in these processes, I think the climate change examples are really good. Um, okay. you think about the yellow vests in, in France, um, and like mm-hmm. everyone was super pissed at Macron because the grass prices went up based off policies. Um, uh, sorry, really pissed at the president. Um, and mm-hmm. there was like a huge sort of populist movement around that. And he started this, this large citizen precipitation, process that involved lots of different things like but one of the the key parts of it was a was a citizen assembly that was granted you know broad powers everything and it was going to be um uh, brought to parliament uh and they were they were delegated to come up with what france's climate policy should be then if you know if you don't want to do what i'm saying as president then come up with your own Uh, (laughs) and you know there were a lot of recommendations that came out of that that had broad common ground uh and not all of them have been implemented like this wasn't an assembly that had like direct power, but you know, many of those things have been moving on through the parliamentary system. So many of them have been adopted and, and it, it, it gave a sort of deeper legitimacy to those things because it was actually, it wasn't just a bunch of folks in Paris um, make, making these choices. You had, you know, equal representation maybe of like urban and rural in many of these processes. Mm-hmm. And so that yeah. like, it, it helps sort of sort through those types of, like, I mean, even the, the most controversial issues, right, There, you're able to navigate through them through a process that is built to do that. Again, this is where you go back to bridging. It's like, what I'm almost like learning from the way these things are facilitated. Okay, <laughs> what can we learn about how to build bridging systems generally? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, and I know the thing that inspires me or that inspires me the most about this these citizen assemblies is like the the mandate that it creates and i think you've mentioned this right is like just that idea of you know at the end of this process you've got the conservative woman going home to her friends right and saying hey i just spent two months in a room with you know a bunch of liberal folks and while i still disagree with them about a bunch of stuff 
we came up with these decisions and this is why it makes sense as a compromise, or this is why this thing that maybe isn't even considered a compromise is the right thing to do. Right. But just, and then, and then the liberal dude is going home to his tribe and saying the same thing. Like, Hey, I know this maybe isn't exactly what we wanted, but I just spent a bunch of time with these people in this room. And this is, this I think is ideal. Right. Um, and just that idea of everybody going home and bringing back that story of kind of working together on this seems really inspiring. Yeah, and, and I think one of the interesting things from the Ireland Assembly, actually, I will bring up, and this is, this is again, they, they had a broad constitutional remit for many issues. They, they covered climate, they covered, um, they, or there was, there's multiple assemblies there, um, but they covered gay marriage, they covered a whole host of issues. But in many of these proceedings, the plenaries are actually live broadcast, um, hmm. or they, they're public. And so the, the population can follow along with what's happening What's being heard by the experts? What, what, what questions are the, the assembly members asking? And so they're actually able to go along on that journey with the assembly members, at least to some extent. They're not in the small group discussions where they're really hearing direct personal experiences from each other, but they're able to hear, to hear bits and pieces of that um, to, to sort of go on that journey. And, and obviously the reason yeah. they're not in the small group discussions is because you want people to really be genuine and open and that you need a little bit of privacy in order to, to create the sorts of bonds that then allow you to come to like, to overcome those deep societal divisions. Absolutely. And, and so bringing this back around to, to platforms again, right? Like this is, you have all these really, really controversial issues around what platforms should be doing. Um, and this is a way to, to help sort of sort through those. And you can imagine the platforms themselves convening these assemblies for specific mm -hmm. issues as they come up or even instituting sort of an ongoing process where you, and this is something that's actually happened in a number of jurisdictions where one assembly convened every year and it chooses, you know, three topics over the course of the year <laughs> that are really important. Like yeah. they're the most important things for that platform to, to be, to be having other assemblies about. And those assemblies right. are the ones that actually decide or like, you know, make the recommendations or make the decisions. And so you have an agenda setting assembly, which then feeds into these subject matter specific assemblies. Right. And yeah. Again, well, can... the other, yeah, yeah, totally. I like the idea of kind of scaffolding those. Um, and it's also funny, right? Cause you think about this and it's the, uh, there's, there's a technological elegance to this where, most of these platforms have all the facilities for hosting these assemblies already integrated into the platform, right? You know, Facebook groups and, and video chat and all that kind of stuff that you would need to actually run the thing. Yeah. And then that, that I think is, is getting into where, um, where sort of my work is, is going is okay. Citizen assemblies are really an interesting way to do platform governance to, to essentially it's a type of democracy that scales. Mm -hmm. for arbitrarily large populations without the overhead of elections, which, which don't really make sense in a context where you're, you'd be electing for like 50 different platforms and, and it just doesn't it's like the, the oh. it doesn't practically make sense. The outcomes would be poor, right? That so there, there's all these things that just don't, they don't make sense. And, and this is like any company that has an impact on a, on a, on an, on a population to then, you know, get, you know, democratic input into that. But, but it, it's only, it only scales in one way, right? It scales in that it scales with respect to the population being impacted. And so you can get an arbitrary number of people who are being impacted, who are represented 
to some degree of fidelity based off the, the size of the actual assembly itself, which might only be 50 or 100 or 200 members. The EU just did an 800 member sort of assembly of, you know, four 200 member things that then like came together in subsets to then determine what the future of Europe should be. And they're going to maybe even uh, modify the EU, um, the EU uh, uh, constitution or my, yeah. But, but anyway, the, the point here is that that scales in one way and there's a way to scale this in a different way, which is how do we actually allow almost all the benefits of this sort of process, but in, then install a thousand, 10,000, a hundred thousand people and not make it, you know, so cost prohibitive. And so that's a thing that I'm, I'm exploring ways to do that. And that I think will be in, in the, like, that'll be the follow-up. Uh, Why is it there's a lot of to, potential here to have more people involved? Like, yeah. What's the difference between having 50,000 people involved versus 50? It just means that there are things that you're going to miss potentially. Okay. Um, and it gives it more legitimacy. I so see. that those are the benefits. And this is again, where having the platforms themselves sort of take the lead in some of these, they have the capacity to build systems that do this. Right. And again, the analogy here to language models is very interesting. Hmm. So this is things like a GPT three where you have a prompt um, and you have some output. And so here we can see how to, how to get a whole bunch of different, you can have a prompt that is what are the three top three things we should work on. And then what are the, what are the results of all of those, those three things, but you can go further than that in terms of Let's thinking about for how second. to scaffold these. Yeah. So just, and just for those who might know, not know, so GBD3 is like a very advanced, like autocomplete, like on your phone, right? Where you can just give it a sentence and it will write a entire novel based on that sentence, right? Like what would naturally follow from there. But, but what's the, the interface between that and, and, and platform assemblies? Oh, um, just assemblies in general, they take like governance processes, take in some question in this case, they're, they're literally taking in a mm. question and they're outputting some response. I see. Interesting. Right. Okay. And so this, that, like the way that you construct these systems, there is an interesting analogy there. Mm, um, okay. I see. And yeah. And this is what we may cover on that, that next episode if we do it. Right. Exactly. Right. Like how to yeah. actually do that, what that means in practice. Um, I think there's some really interesting things here. Like I wanted to focus first in my work on how to do this in a way that was deeply tested. So these citizen assembly processes have been used hundreds of times around the world at all scales of government, including globally, including, you know, uh, transnationally. And they have a lot of very good properties. If you look at the, um, there's a recent uh, thing in science in the last two or three years that sort of is a, is a review of a whole bunch of different studies that show how all the things you think might not work when you have random people taken off the street who are participating in these, like you would think there's all these failure modes. And like, yes, they could exist if you don't have a good process in place, but in practice, they, they, the way these processes are being run, you're able to overcome those issues. And this, the, the members themselves will push back if they see themselves being manipulated by the stakeholders. Hmm. And That's so, inspiring. And, and yeah, so it, it, it is really, really interesting to sort of see how, how these things are actually working in practice around the world. And there are now platforms who are starting to pilot this um, leadership at a number of platforms are very excited about the potential of this to help address some of their regulatory woes and, and just, um, and just their sense of like, we don't want to be in charge of this. Like this feels too big for us to make some yeah. of these calls. Yeah. And, and I think so that's a great point is, to reiterate, right. Is that 
a lot of these folks, it's not like Machiavellian, you know, wanting to control everything. A lot of the times it's like, no, we just don't want to deal with this. As you said, it's a hot potato, right? Right. Like we, we have other things that we're trying to build that like we like yeah. making things. And so we're going to go do that. Or we like, like, like this may, like in many cases, these things don't actually relate to their profit. People think they do. And there are cases where they do, but in many cases, the choice of whether or not to do something or not do something is not at all related to profit. It's just mm-hmm. related to what will, what will actually like balance the different stakeholders who are all pushing them in different directions. And so this allows you to then take that away from these stakeholders who might not be democratic at all, just powerful actors in that society and say, okay, let's actually give this to a democratic process. Mm-hmm. And I think this, just, just to return to the question you asked a while back, which is how do you choose these stakeholders? Don't want to get into all the details, but the, the big, the, like the general sort of rule of thumb, if you talk to, to these conveners is um, like, if, if the stakeholder would get really, would throw a rock at you is sort of the, the literal phrase um, at whatever decision is being made, then, then they should probably be, you should probably figure a way to involve, involve that perspective in, in the process. Um, so and if then it's there, somebody who would get of, really mad if a decision was bad, then you involve them. Is that? Yeah. Decision, yeah. Interesting. And, and, and right. And it's like, and again, there's a huge amount of details. There's a, yeah. in terms of how you can do this. And I do this and is in a way that like, Again, minimizes the thumb on the scale. Sure. Uh, yeah, nothing right. is ever truly neutral, that's, but you can, I mean, democracy is a neutral, it, it provides asymmetric yeah. benefits yeah. to different power, different people in power. Mm-hmm. But, but you can aim for a type of equity that, um, that honestly, ordinary voting doesn't really provide uh, because yeah. there are you know, huge barriers to time and investment, um, both in actually voting yourself or even learning enough to, to feel like you've made a really informed decision on that vote that not everyone has access to. Yes. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about and just in preparing for this episode was, you know, we see how just absolutely deadlocked and uh, the incentives are just so bad, right? Like in the Senate at this point in time. And it, it starts to become an amusing question of what does it look like if you're just like, all right, we'll leave the House of Representatives as is, but Senate, we're just going to replace it with the citizen assembly. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know if that happens overnight, but it starts, it starts, you know, opening interesting questions for me about like, well, what happens if you ran a pilot where you just kind of created a parallel citizen assembly that was trying to review the same issues that were sort of, you know, being, you know, put forward as, as proposed bills and stuff like that. I don't know if anybody's tried that at all, but it, it seems like it would be interesting to see the difference in outcomes uh, between the two. Yeah, and there is an organization that's trying to do something that's like sort of close to that. Um, it's I definitely like it's worth checking out. It's uh, called of by four is an of the people by the people for the people. They can mm-hmm. um, join of by org, and it, it, they provide like sort of a, a really great illustration of how all these processes work. And cool. like, I'm not sold that you should do that. Let's be clear. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not, and, I'm not and neither am I saying just, we need to, but you should, yeah, you should like literally question. replace. And I, and I don't know if, if they're sold either, um, but um, but I will say their videos are really good. Um, Interesting. And I will also say that there are much more practical ways that clearly, or that I, from my perspective, clearly can work in doing this. And this is this <laughs> peeling model where you just take some function that's currently held by a legislature and say, oh, oh. that function is now is now like an assembly. It's going it. to be figuring out that thing. Um, so maybe so it's like some could, aspect of like the FCC or something like that. Is that 
Yeah, something like that. It could be just around tech policy, right? So there are right. even citizen assemblies on tech policy run by Absolutely. governments also. Yeah, and, and if you did and that so through that, an executive uh, agency, that would be a lot easier to implement. <laughs> you could Right, yeah. and so this is the other piece, which is you can actually, you can even think about this as part of the decision-making process within a regulator. Interesting. Right, so you can yes, have, you can have assemblies that are oversight processes for regulators. So if you ever wanted to have a social media regulator, probably um, wouldn't be a good idea necessarily have to be a political appointee who's running it. Um, imagining the equivalent of like, the bounce of back and forth from the left and right for the EPA. Um, like it, it's not ideal necessarily to have to be a political appointee. What if you have a, a, a panel of, you know, 20 citizens who over the course of, of a year or just on a regular basis are reviewing sort of briefings from that uh, regulator. And they maybe have a very specific mandate. That's very, very clear. You must evaluate this thing. But again, they're this impartial jury that was previously trained on the specific things that they need to do. Lots of implementation details. This stuff is more nascent. There's a few places that are trying to figure out how to do this at the city level, but it feels like there's a lot of potential there. Uh, yeah. There's other applications for things like picking justices. You can imagine if you have a multi-party system, each party can nominate five candidates, um, and then the assembly members will actually choose among those. Um, again, they're a representative sample of the population. So you know they have an incentive to pick something that everyone is going to agree on. As opposed to, and I mean, especially if they need to get an 80% vote in order to, to pick someone and they have some timeline, for example. Again, lots of details in terms of yeah. how to do this way. But just to sort of like throw that on the map as like a thing that, that might be top of mind around how we, how, how one builds judicial systems, how one builds executive systems, how one builds legislative systems, both within platforms and then maybe even more broadly. Yeah, this is, this is really interesting. And I love just the, you know, it seems like it just pragmatically gets rid of a lot of potential sources for corruption on these decisions, right? When it's done by a lottery and you don't know who it's going to be until kind of, you know, the week before or whatever, um, just the timelines for corruption shrink, the sort of, you know, fact that you would need to raise a bunch of money to get your name known to get selected by people shrinks, right? There's you know, you're, you're only in there for a certain amount of time, right? So you don't have to worry about re-election or, um, you know, what you're doing afterwards. You know, it, it, it seems like from a lot of angles, it, it, it solves issues that are kind of plaguing our governance systems at this point. Um, so definitely seems like an exciting technique that we can hopefully start to implement more places. Um, so, you know, I know there's a, there's a ton of topics that I wish... You know, we we had time to cover and, you know, I as we've talked about, hopefully we can do another episode here in a couple months uh, to, to go a little bit more meta on what it looks like to, uh, to you know, apply more systems thinking to these uh, assemblies and, and all sorts of uh, democracy related topics. But, you know, for today, is there any other topics that you would love for us to hit uh, before we start to wrap? Not exactly, but I do want to thank um, my amazing research assistant and um, and my collaborator, so research assistant Yi Ting and uh, collaborator um, Luke, who have been um, incredible at sort of helping make uh, platform democracy and, and bridging uh, base ranking uh, happen as a, as a sort of topic area. And I'm also like, I think the other thing that is sort of worth sort of holding here is my approach here is to try to think at the same time 
almost like very technically and also very like in a very humanistic sort of em- em- empathetic, empathetic uh, sort of lens and try to bring those yeah. pieces together. Um, these citizen assemblies are like all made of, they're made of humans. Um, and it's, it's sort of navigating those human dynamics and, but then coupling that with a process in the same way that voting is made of humans, but it's coupled with this sort of process. And the same thing with bridging, it's, it's sort of combining the, these two pieces. And so I think that that is really important for us to be doing more, more generally across all the systems that we create. So that, and that's sort of my prompt to anyone listening is to just think about how, how you can think from both of those frames. Sure, you can think about, you know, language models, but then think about, okay, what is, how does this relate to these, the organizational processes, um, to, to human processes and to what it's like to just live and interact in the world. Absolutely. And I guess the other thing I would just say is I'm currently bringing all this stuff to platforms, to policymakers, uh, to AI labs. Um, and I think that is it just, it's incredibly exciting and I'm happy to help, uh, folks see how this can actually help them achieve the goals that, they'd like to see their, their organizations get to, even if it's not currently maybe the top priority in the roadmap. Um, there are things we can do to help, help support that. Great. Uh, is there a good way for folks to get in contact with you if they want to, to engage on that? Um, yeah, you can email me. Um, my email is just aviv at aviv.me. The website is aviv.me. So A-V-I-V dot M-E. And I'm on Twitter at, at metaviv. Meta. VIV. That's great. Um, and yeah, just any lasting thoughts about how people can kind of get more involved in this or, you know, actions that they might be able to take? Um, you know, if not, I think we left folks with some good things, but if there's any last thoughts there, love to hear it. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, if you're interested, definitely check out the show notes. I'll be, um, there'll be some references there that I think would be of significant interest and you can always, on the, the platform democracy and uh, platform assembly direction, you can just go to platformdemocracy.com and that'll get you to the, the main resource on that. Wonderful. Well, we'll drop some of those links in the show notes. And thanks again, Aviv. This is, uh, you know, this is inspiring stuff and it's exactly what we try to go for here on Reroute because I think this, this offers a lot of hope on some places that seem uh, otherwise pretty stuck. So thank you again for, for being here today and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Thank you. And I, I'm happy to bring hope wherever I can because we definitely need more of it. And this has definitely been, for me, a thing that has helped me sort of see the opportunity of what we could be, where we could be. And I feel like there is a, an incredible amount of potential that we just need to realize before it's too late. 100%. All right. Take care and talk soon. Thanks. Bye.